it seems more and more in American Christendom that the music is being kind of motivated and driven by the children in the church. And I'm glad that that's true here at Preston City Bible Church. The young people really do have control of our musical uh, worship. And um, <clears throat> we're really glad you, uh, you're here with us. And welcome back from your long sojourn far, far, far away in the very misguided uh, trip you took to Texas in July. Misguided only because of the, the heat down there. That song, you know, um, is, uh, is the reflection as a poem on God's plan despite horrific loss. You probably have heard me tell the story of Horatio Spofford and the loss of his children in a tragic uh, boat accident. Uh, ships, their steamship sank uh, crossing the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, his wife survived and his daughters drowned and, uh, and uh, Philip uh, Bliss set the poem to music, named it after the boat, the ship that sank, Ville du Havre. As we're thinking through and singing along in our hearts with that music, I just want to remind you what, um, what it does. Just let me take a little trip with you through that song, not to tell the story of the song, that's the death of these children, but to tell the story the song tells. It starts with you in the water, in a watery illustration, when peace like a river attends my way, when God is meeting me with his peace in my personal experience in the moment. That's, what he's, that's where he starts. And uh, so when there's peace, but when sorrows like sea billows roll, that's a different time. When I'm not in peace like a river, but when I'm in a sea storm, a storm at sea, and, and the sorrows are beating me down. And so it's a whenever, whenever it is, whatever the circumstances. Pastor Dave, don't do this. Don't pick apart our song and tell us what it's actually doing. The exegesis of this song is so good. Watch this. It'll just take a couple more minutes. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. And so it starts with the universal maxim that regardless of our circumstances, God is in control and I belong to him. And so it's a, it's a reflection on Romans eight twenty eight. you know, that all things are working together for good. Even this thing, whatever this is, the peaceful time, the horrible temp tempestuous sorrow that in my heart I go to when we sing that. We sing that at funerals. We sing that here at least quarterly. And, and it's one of the most comforting songs, but it also carries with it that um, we sing it when there's the, the sorrow like a sea billow. The second verse takes you to the cross as the reason why you can have this peace of mind despite horrible circumstances. And this is an experience that Horatio Spofford and his wife had to live through that we're borrowing from. And maybe you've had circumstances in your life like they did, and maybe you haven't. But this is an amazing testimony that he goes to the cross. My sin, oh, the joy of this glorious thought. My sin, not the part, but the whole was nailed to the cross. So he could talk about anything, about circumstances, about troubles, about it being well with my soul. But he takes you to the reason for the stability, the cross of Jesus Christ goes back in our, we go back in our thinking to that historical event 
and, and we hang all our hopes on the Lord Jesus Christ. And unless we're there, unless we're there, well, no, I'm just doing, I'm doing okay right now, but no, forget your circumstances and whether you're good or bad, go back to the cross and get stabilized. That's the theological basis, the truth that is bigger than his circumstances. My, it was nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. And this is why Paul can tell you, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice even in chains in Philippi. I mean, in, in, not in Philippi, in Rome, writing the Philippians. Paul can say that in Ephesians 4, in chains, because, or Philippians 4, because it's always true. He can say, thank God all the time because the cross is always true. And that's a constant reality based on an event in history that will forever bear eternal results in your life, regardless of your circumstances. So this is Christian stability. Does it depend on circumstances? Depends on what Jesus did at the cross. So Paul can say, everything's hanging on the resurrection. And in first Corinthians 15, if there's no resurrection, then we are the most to be pitied. Because our only hope, Peter says, is in the Lord. And then where does Horatio Spofford go? He goes where every bereft parent goes. He goes where Nate's parents live. Nate Boyden died seven years ago this last week. And Loring and Linda carry that every day. And as we bear along with our brother and sister in Christ, we weep when others weep, we rejoice when others rejoice, and this is the joy they look forward to. It's eschatology. And so Horatio Spofford goes from, regardless of my circumstances, I have a spiritual life because of the cross work of Jesus Christ. And now, Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back like a scroll, the trump shall resound, the Lord will descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. So he goes in his thinking to the kingdom, to the second advent of Jesus Christ, to the glorious revelation in Romans 8 of the sons of God to planet earth that removes the curse. Okay? And in that is where our destiny lies, where we are tending. So like Jesus on the cross in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, we look not down at our suffering. We look up and out at what is coming. We look at what God has promised and we expect all that he said he would do. And that expectation is a theological technical term that we call hope. God made promises. We believe them. We believe them so much. We come to expect them. That expectation of the coming kingdom is in part our hope. And so what a wonderful thought process to go through. I get emotional when I hear those chords. Really well done, by the way. Really beautiful. I've heard you do it before. That was good too. It was really good. I'll never hear it enough times what I'm saying. It was wonderful. And I get emotional with the, with the tune because it's got now associations for me with things like, like Nate. But more than that, it makes me think because of what those words mean. And it's always a check. I pray it's a check for you too. Are you thinking along with Horatio Spofford, bereft of his children? Do you think along with them about what your hope is, why you're stabilized? 
because the truth is we're in this grand story, but we often don't feel like we're part of it. We're in this thing God is doing, but a lot of times we're just stuck in our moment in our little, little piece of, you know, as this tapestry is being woven, we're in our one little stitch and we don't think about the big picture. And God's word keeps pulling us out of the momentary light affliction to the benefit of it in the coming judgment seat of Christ. Well, um, we're going to open this morning to Ephesians chapter five, and this is the seventh Sunday of six, six Sundays through Ephesians. And we're in Ephesians chapter five, praise the Lord. And we're going to pick it up at verse seven. As we go to the Lord, uh, seeking his grace in time of need, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the fellowship that you've secured for us through the work of Christ on the cross and the blood of Jesus, your son, goes on cleansing us from all sin. And we thank you that even though we suffer under the burden of, uh, of, a, of, of the lusts of the flesh, we suffer uh, in the war between the flesh and the spirit, even though uh, often we fail, you don't ever fail. Your grace is sufficient and you are continuing to work in us. We thank you for the rod of correction. We thank you for the staff that guides us. Father, we thank you for the word that strengthens us. And now we want you to transform us as your, your apostle Paul has told us, the, the renovation of our thinking through the work of your spirit with the word of Christ, is there's nothing less uh, than that that we seek today. We want to be transformed and matured by consideration of your word, the way you've given it to us. We praise you and seek that grace. Father, we don't deserve it, but we want it. In Christ's name, amen. If we always pray for God's revealed will, we'll always get our answered prayers uh, exactly. We'll always get a yes to our prayers. If you pray for what God revealed, that he wants you to grow spiritually and to put on Christ, if you ask him for that, you will get it. You will get it. You got to pursue that prayer with a lot of choices. But the choice we're going to make today is to turn to Ephesians chapter 5, looking in verse 7. Ephesians 5, 7. And it starts with therefore, which makes me have to go back and read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 through 5, uh, verse 6, to really understand what the therefore is therefore. But let's just do that very quickly. Chapters 1 through 3, privileges of the church, the body of Christ, including the mystery doctrine that they have no, one new man in Christ, Jew and Gentile the doctrine that Paul is the steward that he's deposited. And then chapters four through six, what's chapter four through six? Four through six is the practices of the church, what we should do, how we should live because of these privileges, because of this, the riches of our position in Christ. And so he has been talking in chapter four about the worthy walk and putting off the old man and it's and walking according to the flesh, the life you lived according to the lust of the flesh and putting on the new man, which is to, um, to walk in the light, as we'll read. It's to walk worthy of our calling. It's to walk by the Spirit. It's to abide in Christ. All the, the, the sanctification language of the New Testament is, is now what he's talking about, how you are to walk. And so we pick it up in verse 7, where you could walk as the sons of disobedience, uh, for whom there is no inheritance of the coming kingdom, but do not. And so now we have a command in verse seven, therefore do not be partakers together with them. Don't join in the practices. Don't become partners with 
Don't become beneficiaries of the ill-gotten gains that they have. The reason people walk in sin is because they feel like it. And the reason they feel like it is because there is a short-term benefit that they perceive they'll receive or they will receive. Generally, it's some sort of good feeling. Let me illustrate what I mean by good feeling through personal sin. Let's pick a sin category that feels good. I know, everybody's nervous, what's he gonna talk about? <laughs> anger, of course, I'm gonna talk about anger. Nobody who is very well acquainted with their own patterns and habits, who deals with having to, to be sanctified in this area, is gonna deny that in a moment, in the moment, it feels good to hit the button, the red anger button. As you mature, you're gonna become more aware that, hey, there's a button, don't hit it, don't hit that button. You're gonna become aware that this is a choice. Little kids don't know that they're, they're making a choice, but they are when they get angry, but it feels good. That's why people given over to anger act like complete imbeciles. And if they could see a video of themselves acting out in anger, they'd be like, oh, oh, please, no, don't, oh, he did it. That's, that's the way everybody that gives, that pushes that anger button starts holding forth or breaking things or whatever happens when you get angry. That's what happens, but, but the reason we do these stupid things, I mean, you, not me, but the, the reason people do these things is because it feels good. Isn't that true? That that's what, Paul's not telling you, um, don't be partakers with them because you wouldn't feel like it. He's telling you contrary to your feelings from the, the, the when, you're, when you're struggling with the lust of the flesh tempting you, you gotta say no. And it's gonna require power. Paul talks about this in Galatians 5, the power of the spirit. And he's going to tell us to be filled with the spirit in this chapter. So do not be partakers with these people who are in this class of unbelief and therefore disobedience and therefore these wanton lifestyle sins. Don't be partakers with them for you before, before you were darkness, you were one of them, but now you are light in the Lord. You were before darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. It's really obvious. He's saying, put off the old man and put on the new man. He's not saying believe in Jesus Christ as your savior so that you'll inevitably walk like you should. He's saying you who have believed in Christ are not resurrected yet. You have temptation from within. You have deception and temptation from Satan's world system from without. And so you have to reject it. So you who are saved, put off this, this giving in to the lust of the flesh and put on this life that, that is walking worthy of your calling. And I don't know if you've noticed, every time I put a red on the screen in Ephesians four through six, it's a command. Command, 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 command. Two commands in verse 18, we're gonna get there. The two commands in verse 18, be not ye drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. It's a command, don't get drunk. Do not be inebriated, do not become intoxicated. Do not become characterized by the alcohol with its influence, but rather, instead as a contrast be filled by the spirit two commands you see all through the spiritual life the lord jesus through the apostles are giving us instructions that we as believers empowered by the spirit are capable of following through with of fulfilling and the commands are not the same as believe in christ that's its own command the commands are for those who have believed in Christ. And I keep wanting to make that distinction. There is a di you don't tell 
the unbeliever. Oh, don't be a partaker with them. They are of them. They are the them. This is saying you believers do not become participants with them. So it nails us. In other words, don't be that person that's sitting there right in the pew. Eventually, you're going to ask why you're doing that, by the way. And I have no idea why. Unless you're going to be on mission and actually use the word uh, in your life to serve God with. I have no idea why you would do this. But, but don't, don't be that person that says, oh, I'm saved. So, you know, this, is, this doesn't apply to me. It only applies to you. Them is the unbeliever. You don't be partakers with them. For you were before darkness like them, but now light in the Lord. And so as children of light, walk. What color is that? Rojo. And that means it's a command. And so what's the word? Peripateo. I I love that word, peripateo. Peripateo means to walk around or to walk. It means the mode of life. Paul's way of describing the Christian way of life is peripateo, to walk. This means your choices. It means your way of life. It means how you get up in the morning, what you do with your day, how you live it, and how you go to bed. it's, It's your walk. It's your life. Well, what's my recommendation for what that should look like? Well, I believe what you and I should do is recognize that our lives belong to God because he bought us with the blood of Christ. Fair enough. I'm just going to summarize everything we've read so far. So we belong to God because Jesus bought us with the blood of Christ. So now my life is his and let's chop up our lives into manageable chunks. What is the most manageable chunk of life? The day. That's what you get. You get today. And so Jesus teaches us in Matthew 6, today is, 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 is your responsibility tomorrow. It's not your responsibility. That'll be your, your responsibility tomorrow when tomorrow is today. So you divide your life that belongs to God into chunks called days. And you recognize that not only does my life belong to God, but all the pieces of it. So today belongs to God. You see where I'm going with this? So we get up with thanksgiving to God. Thank you for the day. Thank you for the privilege. Thank you for the opportunity. Let me do what your scriptures say. Let me not be partakers. Just pick up a passage in Ephesians four through six and pray it. Father, I don't want to be partakers with them. I know I was before darkness, but you, because of your work uh, through your son on the cross, you and your son and your spirit have made me light in the Lord. So let me walk as you've commanded. Let me do what you say here. That is how I think you should start your day. Start it with prayer. Walk through your day with prayer. Have appointments where you're going to only pray and you catch up. I think one good thing to do, watch this, before you eat lunch, you should talk to God. And I don't mean a, thank you for this food. Let us serve you with it. In Christ's name, amen. I mean, spend a moment talking to your father in anticipation of lunch. Now, why would I say that? Why would, why would that be a good idea? This is just all kinds of Pastor Dave advice, but why would you do that? Because if you're going to eat, there's going to be some joy, some satisfaction, some pleasure. All right? Now, if you're, if you're doing the warrior thing and you're not gonna eat till four and the window opens and you're doing intermittent fasting and you close the window at, at eight, and you're doing that warrior diet thing, and then that's a whole different kind of prayer life. You start praying at noon uh, because you're, you start getting hungry maybe. But my point is, if you don't eat yet and you spend a little bit of time praying, just think about it, it's a little mini fast. You're saying, I'm hungry, I wanna eat, but I'm gonna wait. And I'm gonna use that delayed gratification for the flesh, for the body, not the sin nature, just for your body. I'm gonna use that moment 
to commit my attention to the Lord in prayer. I think it's a really wise thing. And you're already, if you're wise, you're already sanctifying the food. So just extend that a little bit. It's just a thought, but it, it's your catch up time. And then what if you're having lunch with friends? Well, I wouldn't recommend unless it's a, that kind of friendship where you're going to disciple them and say, hey, let's, let's spend some time in prayer first, which would be awesome if you have that kind of friendship. And um, that's a whole different thing. But you can see what I'm saying. Like pick times, make occasions where you can commit a little bit of attention to the Lord in a day that's supposed to be completely lived in prayer. And by the way, when are you going to set aside time to eat? You're talking to him. When are you going to set aside time to make sure you're hearing what he's telling you through the word? Find a time, make it sacred, communicate it to the people in your life that would infringe on that time. Hey, this is the time. And then watch Satan and his <laughs> deceived minions do everything they can to schedule things in that time that you've set aside. It's amazing how that works, but commit the time, set it aside. There is no shortcut to this. You need to eat. Well, how do we eat? Well, you can read your Bible. There are all kinds of ways I could recommend. I grew up studying the, 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 the passages that my pastor would teach, and I would make sure I was listening to a Bible tape every day. And I would do that all through from when I was about eight or nine years old until I started going to seminary at 20, I forget when, what, 26. And then it was a little bit different approach because I'm in the text constantly and uh, still studying with, with my betters, my superiors, those that had been before me. And my point is um, you can get a lot of, uh, of understanding when you have somebody working with you that's, uh, that's developed uh, some, some, some depth from the text. Now, all that is an illustration meant to enlighten you to what he means by walk as children of light walk. You need to be characterized by the righteousness of God, the character of Jesus Christ, the light. And he says, for the fruit of the light, notice in context, you might not have picked this up in your English when you're reading it, but it, it says, walk as children of light. You are light in the Lord, walk as children of light. And then for the fruit of the light, what's the fruit of light? would be the children of the light. See what I mean? It's, it's, it's a way, and I can't spend a lot of time here because we're surveying Ephesians, but it's a way of paralleling the idea of you being born again and having this life in you and, li and living it and the character of God and the principles and the practices being connected. So the children of light ought to walk as children of light. And what is that? Goodness, righteousness, and truth. Why don't we do this? Why do we not walk as we should? Well, I believe you and I have a tendency to think, well, only God is righteous and that's true. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one goes to the, comes to the father except through me. And so we're aware of our sinfulness and we, we don't think that righteousness comes from us. And yet, the power of God with his word, the spirit of God using that word in you is designed to bring forth this character, the fruit of the spirit. So how, how can you walk in righteousness? Well, you have to want it. 
Seek you first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you, says Jesus to Israel, explaining the Mosaic law. This is something we should be craving, we should be running after, we should be pursuing. We don't do it because we're afraid of the charge of being self-righteous. We're afraid, I, I hope you're afraid of yourself of being self-righteous. That's a healthy and necessary biblical fear, I think. Watch yourself. We don't want to be self-righteous, but we want to hunger and thirst after righteousness. And what does that mean? What's the moral perfection of God? The infinite goodness of your creator, the righteousness of God revealed throughout the book of Romans as the thesis of Romans. And so you need to walk in that light. Now that's, that's a heavy load. I once read a book, a fantasy book, um, that didn't have any Christianity in it, but it had religious people that were uh, crusaders against the good guys. They were like, the, I think they were portraying the Ku Klux Klan, but they called themselves the children of the light. I read that before I ever read this, interestingly. And so when I read this, I was like, wow, the world really doesn't like this language. And we're gonna see how much it doesn't like it as we keep reading. And this is the problem. Don't be partakers with them, that's darkness. Your light, the light shines. The sunlight is a great disinfectant. And what happens when the light turns on in darkness? All the darkness critters scatter. It's uncomfortable. And you start getting all kinds of challenges. You're self-righteous, goody-goody Christians, skippy Christianity, whatever. Now, I just want to say, next time someone accuses you of being self-righteous, now watch this. This is so great. Whether it's Bill Maher or whoever, next time someone tells you you're self-righteous, ask yourself the question. Watch this. Watch this. Does this person claiming that I am misguidedly self-righteous think that they're not? Does he think he's not self-righteous? Follow the logical thought here. The answer is yes. They're calling you self-righteous. You think you're better. Okay. Does this person think he is not confused and self-righteous? Yes. Would that be better not to be self-righteous? Yes. So this person, by thinking that he doesn't think he's better, is thinking that he's better. Are you tracking? The, the, every time someone levels an accusation of self-righteousness, they open themselves up to the accusation that they themselves are being self-righteous. Now that's religious. Now that's crazy. But that's what we do. We all think we're right. It's just arrogance. It's just man saying it's right because it's me. So work with this. Embrace this. You need to embrace righteousness. You need to be a, a, a product of the light, the character of God. And you need to let that light shine. This little light of mine. You need to let it, you need to let it shine forth from your, your character and unflinchingly, unflinchingly say, no, I don't do that. No, we're not. I'm not. And here is the secret in my view in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. The way you shine forth that blast of, of devastating light that, that completely puts wickedness in relief and the person sees himself and doesn't want to because the light is shining. You need to mix that with this sojourn that you're walking in love. The light shines and that's righteousness. 
And you need to meet that with love. That person doesn't just need to know that you're embracing, I don't practice in these sinful practices. I don't think it's good for people to do that. We don't need to go there or do that. Whatever you have to say, that means you're making your choices and saying no to their choices. You need to meet that with compassion, with consideration. What is this person's best? And you really need to stop seeing yourself as us and them. There isn't us, them. It's, but, but your goal is to get them to become us. So it's not just, oh, you guys do that thing that I don't do. But, uh, and, and so I'm over here and I, I'm also interested in your good and I'm not doing what I do as a judgment of you, but the truth does judge you. And then you tell them about being a sinner saved by grace. You tell them that we all need a savior and there's none righteous except God. And I'm seeking God's righteousness. And the way you're talking sounds like you're trying to be right too. You don't want to see people be self-righteous. But that's our problem. We are all self-righteous. See, it's hard to do this. When someone accuses you of being self-righteous, it's hard to say, let me tell you these five things. Then all of a sudden we're walking together. But you need to be ready for this kind of engagement if you're going to walk as Paul says. As children of the light walk for the fruit of light is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, examining or testing or proving what is pleasing to the Lord. Same language, same language as Romans chapter 12, proving what the will of God is. And so this is, this is your thinking, you're examining, you're comparing. That's what this language is talking about, where you're actually processing with your reason from, from what you know of the word and the power of God, the Holy Spirit, this thing that I am not just trying to satisfy my own sense that I, you know, my conscience is satisfying or I'm, I'm a good person and nobody's going to say any different or what I do. This is how I feel. If someone calls me out, I'm competitive. So I feel like they've beaten me if they're right and I'm wrong. I'm like, oh. So now it's a competition to get to be more right than they are. Is that too much transparency about my sinful tendencies? You know, that, I think a lot of people are that way. Um, it, it gives me comfort to think that. Anyway, um, <laughs> the point is, whatever it is that, that happens when someone um, calls you out, okay? It, it isn't about getting right. It isn't about being the right person. It isn't about being right in your own eyes. It's in verse 10 about pleasing the Lord. That's a personal relationship thing going on. So this whole self-righteousness morality conversation, that's not even what this is about. I serve a savior who died for your sins. And he wants me to have this conversation with you about his love. And when we as humans reject that love, that is a very foolish thing for us to do because it's, it's what we're made for. I mean, that's the kind of conversation you're in when someone tries to get hold of you and say you're self-righteous. You need, we need to become a little bit more grappler, a little more, little more uh, wrestlers about this. You know, you give me a foot, you, you present your heel to me. If I'm wrestling, that's not, that's not bad news. That's good news. I'm not going to let you hit me with it. I'm going to grab it. Now I've got a piece of you to hang on to and we can start working with it. That's, that's what I learned in my one semester of wrestling. You, uh, <laughs> you look for something for them to give you. So they, 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 they shove their, their heel in your face and you just grab hold of that and start working it. You want to call me self-righteous? Let's talk about that. And that's, I'm going to confess to you, that's not an easy conversation. But this is the reason we don't, we don't embrace this like we should, because we're under pressure. It's peer pressure. We're going to be rejected. And that's a guarantee. That's a given because the light is opposed to the darkness and the darkness hates the light in John 1. 
Do not fellowship or participate together with the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Moms and dads, kids, young people, people with young people, they are all going to be asked to participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. He doesn't tell you what they are. We described them earlier. The old life, the old man, the, the life given to the flesh. We feel like it, we do it. Don't join in. It's the, it's the business of the unbeliever. Do not participate together with the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but rather indeed expose. Oh, there we go, baby. Let's get on our horse and ride. We are going to go exposing some sin. Now, you don't have to become a crusader. In fact, please don't. You'll end up arrogant and self-righteous and, and missing the boat on this. This means that you live your light. You let your light so shine before men that they can see. You expose by showing up as a child of the light, embracing the righteousness of God, insisting on it for yourself, desiring it for the other. I've told you, I got to tell you again, my grandpa, the preacher, y'all remember the story about my grandpa, the preacher? Well, I still have to tell. There's some people that don't know the story. yet. Some of us, we've got 13 years of me telling my stories, but all right. So my mom's dad was, uh, was actually in the Battle of the Bulge as a tank commander, a tank destroyer commander. That's a track vehicle with no roof. <laughs> the roof is kind of like just to make you feel better in the tank. It's can't, not going to stop anything. But anyway, he's in this tank destroyer. And this, this equipment, this, this self-propelled gun is actually able to penetrate a tiger tank. It's only one of the only things in our, in our rolling stock that could do that. And so there he is you know, in World War II. Well, they had all the experience. You think about the young guys they had in World War II. What'd they do? What'd they do in World War II? They went to England to stage to do the invasion. Once the invasion was ongoing, as my grandpa experienced, they went to England to, to launch, to go join in the, the second wave efforts. And, um, and so in England, there was a time of getting your unit together and hurry up and wait. And so they went and sat in England and they had things called Liberty. Well, liberty is a time for libertines. And uh, as the British um, historically said about the Americans when they were in England uh, launching into World War II, I believe I read, I read about this in Ambrose in uh, Band of Brothers, but uh, the only problem with the Yanks is that they're overpaid and oversexed and over here. That was the description of these soldiers that were sitting there, young men between the ages of 18 and 23, 24, mostly 18, uh, in a foreign country with strange accents, but I could kind of understand them and really not great food and, and all the things that are there, but a whole lot of, and, and you're exotic because you're different. And so all the things that happen that you know about with soldiers. My grandfather is a, uh, a Bible believing Christian. He, he went there with his Schofield Bible. Still trying to get my, find this in, in the, the things. I think my mother has it. Maybe you have it. But he, he had his Schofield Bible and, um, and that he was given in his church. He grew up in a Pentecostal church, which in his day would have been a very new thing. And, um, but they were, they were reading their Schofield Bible. And so it's amazing how God works. And, um, but he didn't want to go do those unfruitful deeds of darkness. He was married. That helped. But all through the training, all through the boot camp, all through the stuff, when the guys are running around being young men, you know, doing what the kids are going to do anyway. As Paul says, to get away from fornication, you have to leave planet Earth if you want to get away from it completely. 
He wouldn't go out with them. And he took horrible ridicule. Y'all seen this, the story of Dawes, the Hacksaw Ridge story about the Desmond Dawes? That, 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 it's that kind of thing. Like They beat him up for not carrying a rifle. And then he saved all their lives. But, um, but just, you know how young people can be. They're just nasty. It starts off in like, I don't know, third grade or something, and it just gets worse. <laughs> They're just horrible. And, um, and they, they ridiculed him and ostracized him and criticized him because he would sit there reading his Bible on his bunk and he wouldn't, be, uh, he wouldn't go off and do these. And he's doing exactly what we read here. Do not fellowship together with the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but indeed rather expose. So he sits there and reads his Bible as they're headed out to go downrange, as they call it in, in South Korea. The army calls it going downrange when they go to the red light district, doing what young people are going to do. And he said, no. And so by saying no, he's exposing. He's putting a light up. He's putting this big, beautiful white phosphorus flare. When you shoot a, an illumination round in artillery, it makes this big old, it's got a parachute on it. It's got this big, beautiful ball of light in the middle of the night. It, as it falls down, you can see everything like it's daylight, but as the thing falls, it changes the shadows. It's really this interesting thing. If you ever see illumination round, that's kind of what my grandpa is doing. That's what you and I are doing. As we say, no, I, we don't do that. And I'll tell you why. God doesn't want me to do that. And I love my Savior. Just like Joseph, how could I do this thing against my God? When Potiphar's wife is asking him the same question. Simply by saying no, you're exposing. Simply by standing your ground, staying engaged. Now, one thing Christians might do, we might join the folks over in Lancaster and say, well, we're not even going to go assemble with these people. We're going to completely segregate ourselves and not be around them, not be in and amongst them. And then the rest of the world looks in and says, well, that's that's interesting. Those guys make some interesting furniture. They can build you a barn. And we don't really know anything about they got beard and no mustache. You know, like we don't know what they're saying. You can go ask them. But my point is, if you stay engaged, you stay connected and you say no right there. We had a kid in uh, the, the New York. No, no. The. Um, what San Francisco baseball player said no. I'm not going to kneel yesterday or day before. I'm not going to kneel because I'm a Christian. I don't do this. I don't kneel for anything but Jesus. So this is bad. It's not a good sign. It's not a good look. You know, he, apparently he's read Daniel 3. And now he's a national news person. I couldn't tell you any of the people pitching for Major League Baseball for whatever five games or whatever they're going to have this year. But, but he said no. And now... I wonder what kind of response he's going to get. We all need to send him a letter and say, thank you for saying no. You're doing Ephesians 5. Stick with it. Drew Brees said, hey, we need to just honor the flag and not kneel for the flag. And all of a sudden he's a racist and he came back and said he was sorry. He apologized. He, was, he didn't realize how horribly insensitive he'd been for saying that we need to stand and honor because that's how we do it. We honor the, those that have died for our country. That's what that flag represents. Nevertheless, by saying no, by resisting, by holding to your guns in love as they hate you. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You will be exposing. For the things in secret which come into being by them are shameful even to speak about. And yet, by shining the light and being among them, you will be exposing the things that they do in secret. But here's what light does. All things by being exposed by the light are made visible for everything which is visible is light. 
We are to be light. And this is, beloved, this is going to hurt. They hated Jesus. They're going to hate you. Because the light that Jesus shined is the light he's shining through you. And the same hatred that's been going on for 2,000 years and really before, but since Jesus came and shined the light and the darkness hated the light, that same rejection is going to fall on us. What do we do about it? Popular uh, unbelieving caricature of Christendom, of Bible-believing Christians, they call us fundamentalists. The popular caricature of us will be that we're going to say, you know, take up arms or um, do some sort of activism. This is very activist. It is. This is, this is hold the line. But you're a Christian. In Antioch, we were first called Christoi. Some say don't say Christian anymore because it doesn't have meaning. But that word is taken. It was given to us by the Roman world in the first century. And it meant little Christs. It's a diminutive, little Jesuses. That's what they called us. That's what Christian means. It's good to know what words mean. Don't take that away. Oh, no, I'm a Christ follower. Great, but I'm a Christian too. Because that word has meaning. We read about an Acts. You're going to suffer a little bit, momentary light affliction for this, but it's going to bring forth proven character. I think verse 10 is the key to understand how in the world I can have the power, the staying power to do this. How can I be this person that God uses as his light of truth to shine in a dark world and show the world its moral failure, failure and therefore need for a savior? I'm going to make it about pleasing the Lord and I'm going to quickly take it to the gospel every time the light shines in the darkness. Why? Because here's what the unbelieving mind sees. It sees it wants to do what it feels like. Well, this is just how we do. And then you say, no, I don't do that. And the light shines this light on the moral darkness. Today they call it, well, I'm not going to say what they call it, but you say it's sexual perversion, sexual perversion. Now you're a bigot and, and all that. Well, very quickly, we go from the awareness of sin, which unbelief hates and rages and gnashes its teeth at, and we go right to the solution to sin. Now, what I'm saying is, you're not telling them, well, you, know, you just need to be like me. That's not what we're saying. We're saying, I was once like you. And what you need is the one who can give you life. And that's why I'm here. I'm not here to tell you to be like me. I'm here to tell you what Jesus did for you. And you make the, it's not about you. It's not about, well, I'm shining the light. So you need to get, no, Jesus died for those sins that you feel like I'm criticizing. I'm not criticizing your sin. Sin is sin. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. You're in your sin. I've been saved from my sin. That's, that's the cross. You need to go to the Lord Jesus. That's what you do to shine the light and have its effect. And I think that will help you a lot in your conversations and your discourse with others as you tell them the truth. And here's what they'll know. If you do it right, if you speak the truth in love, they'll know that you think you love them. Bless your heart. It's a good witness. Let me tell you the rest of the story with my grandfather. They hate him. They make fun of him. They laugh at him because he's shining the light. He's not preaching the Bible. He's just sitting there reading it. But they hate him and they make fun of him, ridicule him, call him the preacher. I went armor. I was glad that my grandfather had been in, in the armor corps and then I went armor. And now I am a pastor. 
He was excited about that. But guess what the preacher is also good for? He doesn't just sit and read his Bible and preach sermons. He's also there when you need to talk to somebody that'll take you back to the word. He's there for that, that he's talking to the Lord. And maybe this guy knows something he's there to talk to. These guys would go, go come back from visiting houses of ill repute. Then they would go to the medic and get their penicillin shot and, and to just be scared to death. And they go talk to the preacher. Not everybody, not in a group. Oh, now let's have church one-on-one. -on -one. They'd sneak in there by night like Nicodemus. Oh, can we talk? Can we talk uh, park? We need to, we need to talk about something. I need to see you tell somebody something. I mean, I'm scared. I'm, I'm 18, far from home. I'm full of brag and, and, and noise, but I'm just a little kid truly inside. And now I've done something that I'm afraid of ruined my life. Because, I mean, there was a difference in the cultural conscience back then. But he was there and he would talk to them. And he told me there were several times guys would come and counsel with him. And um, I don't know what he told them. I know what you and I need to tell them. You haven't just ruined your life. That's not what you're, that's not the point. You've been given life to serve God with. God wants a relationship with you. And the reason you're scared and hurt and talking to me right now is because God is calling you to a relationship with himself. So you need to consider what God has done to build that relationship. See, we're broken and sinners and you're dealing with sin. Jesus died for your sins on the cross. God sent his son to pay for those sins. That's the counsel that those kids needed. You know, one of them said, well, I believe in Jesus. I'm a Christian. I don't know if my grandfather knew what to say. Most 18 and 20 year olds don't know what to say. Well, are you really a Christian? Uh, I don't know much about the Bible, but I can take you to James 2. And, and if you don't really uh, uh, do the works, then your faith is dead. So you're not really a believer and uh, we don't know anything about the Bible. But can we please get hold of James and read Romans and try to be faithful to the text? No, you tell the believer, yeah, you sinned. You have a personal sin problem and you have a war going on you between the flesh and the spirit and we'll go to galatians 5 not james 2 we'll go to galatians 5 and understand this war and when you make the wrong choice let's go to james 2 and say you're not trusting in god in the temptation and so your faith is dead and so you're doing these stupid works you can take a believer there but i think you need to take them to elsewhere in james cleanse your hands you teach a believer you restore a believer who's trapped in sin and you take him to first john and you say this is what you do jesus did it in john 13 when he washed peter's feet he's telling you here in john first john chapter one it was part of the old testament levitical system it's what you do when you find yourself guilty with personal sin the self-evaluation of first corinthians 11 if we confess our sins in first john 1 9 he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins you've got a problem in your fellowship with god and you need to abide in christ and so keep his commands and you're disobedient to him so you need to get clean and then abide in jesus christ and take him to john 15. that's what you do with a believer that's convicted because the light has shone forth and you have studied and studied and studied not to be self-righteous about it you can do it it hurts it hurts to wait until the initial blast of rejection 
and then wait until they come back or if the conversation turns around, it hurts. It's like when I ask a question in class and I have to wait eight seconds for somebody to give me an answer. It hurts. I want to get out of that. It's, it's, it's the suspense. You just have to learn to study and trust the Lord through the suspense. All things being exposed by the light are made visible for everything which is visible is light. And then therefore it says, and there is a lot of discussion about where this quote comes from. It's one of the big questions all through the New Testament. How are they used in the Old Testament? I do not personally think this is a direct quote of the Old Testament. I think this is something that was probably being sung in the early church. But awake sleeper and rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to Romans 8 believers that might be walking according to the flesh. For if you walk by the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. This is a beautiful way of describing someone not enjoying fellowship with God who needs to be restored to fellowship. Arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Now, I got that interpretation from context. If Jesus is shining on you, and therefore you're reflecting that light, then you're walking with him in the light. This is the other side of, you know, enjoying a personal rapport and fellowship with God is that that has a purpose toward the other people. Now, here's a struggle I've always had. You're doing great. Who has counted how many bird chirps since we started, since amen? Anybody that kind of, I saw that hand. <laughs> I'm kidding. We're going to rehome some, some sparrows this week. I, I have the ladder. I just have to figure out how to get it here. It's, it's pretty tall there. I found where they are. They're in the siding. There's a little recess in the siding under the air conditioner there. I 12 gauge would um, <laughs> put a hole in the wall and then we'd have a hole. So no, I, want, I don't want to kill any little birdies. I love birds. Grew up, grew up with my mother. We raised birds all my life. Um, I hate those birds, but uh. <laughs> walking as a clandestine Christian, walking like the world is possible. That's why all these commands, all the commands. I should have put this portion in red right here. Awaken, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. These are all commands that are on you and me. And so throughout this passage from chapter four till now, he's been telling you not to act like an unbeliever act like a believer because it's a it's an error of which class you belong to he's not telling you how to come to christ he's telling you what you do having come to christ awaken sleeper and arise from the dead and the christ will shine on you i think this is the day star rising in your heart in first peter this is god actually expressing himself through you you're going to have to forgive the weakness in the human vessel here I know my voice can become comfortable. So I pause and get quiet. The birds take over. Christians, you can walk like a non-believer. First Corinthians two and three says so. Romans eight says so. Here, Ephesians five says so. It says don't do it.
my struggle often has been, and the Bible solves it, right? Theology messes me up and the, and the Bible solves the problem because it balances the theology to be biblical. The personal relationship with God idea versus the rapport with others, the fellowship with Christians thing. See, a lot of times we're lazy and we're going to do one thing. What's the one thing? Pick it and I'll do it. Well, I'm just going to focus on my relationship with God. Or I'm here to be seen by the people and it's about cultural Christianity. No. The Bible is very consistent from the Old and New Testaments that we serve God and therefore we love people for his sake. That's the Bible. You love God as the first love and then you love people for his sake as an expression of that love of God. That's the complexity of being a human being in God's design. We love God and therefore we love people with his love for his sake. And I mean, that's the 10 commandments. That's Exodus 20. The first four are God and the last six are man. And it's love God and love your neighbor when Jesus summarizes the law. Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Leviticus 19, 18. That's the summary. Love God and then you love man for God's sake. And we are advancing on the Old Testament expectation because we have the Holy Spirit in us and now we love as Christ loved. So we've got a new commandment that's an impossible thing to fulfill. That's why the next section in spirituality. Please don't make the mistake of saying Christianity is just us together. Please don't also make this mistake of saying Christianity is my personal walk of fellowship with God abiding in Christ. Because if you don't go all the way to what that takes you, I mean, abiding in Christ is loving your brother. So you don't disregard God and just become a humanist and it's about the people. And you don't regard God without taking where he takes you in the word to be concerned for his sake and his power for the people. In other words, I'm not saying it's both. I'm saying the people that are me and God haven't fully understood what that calls you to. And the people that are just me and you, they don't understand anything. They have no idea about anything. That's just satanic humanism. It's start with God and take Take care with what he says, and he'll take you to, I want you to shine my light among men. I want you to represent me and, sh and shine the same light Jesus shown by telling them about him. And I want you to be part of my project that Jesus prayed for, send workers into the harvest. And that's, that's what we're here for. It's the Great Commission. The Apostle Paul is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. We close with the uh, words of life for any who's in the hearing of my voice this morning who may not have the life. In some churches in years past and maybe down the road today, they'll ask you to walk an aisle, raise a hand, make a profession, something that can show and be a concrete moment where you will know that you are trusting in Christ. And I don't do that uh, partly out of tradition. I grew up not doing that, partly because I don't want you to think that if you raise your hand, walk an aisle, that that's what saves you. What you need to do is something that, uh, that is stated again and again in the scriptures. What you need to do about your sin, about eternal life, about the lake of fire, about God's wrath, about all that is true for the human race without God. What you need to do is put your faith, open the hands of faith and receive the gift of eternal life from God who gives it by grace alone through your faith alone. 
What you need to do is trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior is the only necessary response in our hearts to Paul and Silas before the Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. In our discussion today, that'd be in red letters, that'd be in red, red ink because it's a command. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And that faith is not of your works. It is not you doing something to be saved. It's not helping God a little bit. It is all what God alone does through the cross work of Jesus Christ. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. That is the profession of the, of the Bible. That is the proclamation of the gospel. Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. And you need to settle that in your understanding and your convictions and your faith right now. Do I believe in Jesus Christ as my savior? Am I trusting alone in him as the only answer for God's wrath upon my sin? Am I receiving the salvation that God offers freely by his grace as a gift through the work of Jesus Christ? Jesus with nail pierced hands, is opening to you this opportunity and you need with your grubby, sinful brokenness simply to receive it. I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as my savior. You need to tell somebody, you need to, you need to learn about it, you need to grow, you need to follow up with working out your salvation with fear and trembling, certainly. But friend, if you trust in Jesus Christ as your savior, then you have the son. And if you have the son, you have the life. And that makes all the difference. Our Father, we thank you for eternal life through the work of your Son on the cross. I pray that you'll strengthen us to, take that, uh, to, take, to make that choice every time we see the, the alternatives. We see the opportunity to disobey you and follow the lust of the flesh. We see the uh, opportunity to submit to what you've said, to trust you, to seek to please you, to please your Son, and make the choice that uh, your spirit is empowering us to make. And we see this all the time in our lives, Father. I pray that you'll strengthen us, give us victory upon victory so that we will be more and more equipped with a clean conscience, with clean hands to praise you, to glorify you. Father, we want to be for your praise and glory. Strengthen us to that end, we ask it in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen.